Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Happening now, breaking news. Donald Trump appeals Colorado's decision to remove him from the state's Republican primary ballot. He's asking the U.S. Supreme Court to decide disputes about his eligibility for office under the U.S. Constitution's insurrectionist ban. Also tonight, Iran is warning of a harsh response to deadly explosions near the tomb of a top Iranian general exactly four years after he was killed in a U.S. airstrike. CNN is in the region with an update on the blast and the rising Middle East tensions. And House Speaker Mike Johnson and dozens of GOP lawmakers visit the southern border, turning up the pressure on President Biden to cut a deal on immigration. This hour, I'll discuss the migrant crisis with New York's Democratic mayor, Eric Adams. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. Let's get right to the breaking news. Donald Trump now formally asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado ruling, removing him from the ballot. The high court under mounting pressure to intervene as Trump faces ballot disputes in multiple states. Our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez, is working this important story for us. Evan, what is Trump arguing in this appeal? Well, Wolf, the the former president is arguing that this extraordinary decision from the the Colorado Supreme Court cannot be allowed to stand simply for a number of reasons, including the fact that the 14th Amendment should not apply to the office of president. It's not mentioned in the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, The uh, former president also points out that he, that uh, under his his belief, he did not actually engage in an insurrection. So the Colorado decision was incorrect according to uh, their filing. I'll read you just uh, some more of this uh, 43 pages here that they filed uh, with the Supreme Court. They say this court should grant certiorari to consider this question of paramount importance summarily reverse the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling and return the right to vote for their candidate uh, for their candidate of choice to the voters. Uh, they go on to uh, say, well, uh, a ruling, this is a ruling, again, the Colorado Supreme Court ruling, this is a ruling that if allowed to stand will mark the first time in the history of the United States that the judiciary has prevented voters from casting ballots for the leading major, politi- uh, par- major party presidential candidate. Now, Wolf, uh, one of the things that, that, that really stands out in this, in this filing, uh, I, I would say perhaps the cheekiest uh, argument that the, that the former president is making, is that the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, they say, uh, doesn't, doesn't prohibit uh, someone from running for office. It only prohibits someone from holding office. And so they're saying that the Supreme Court should, just based on that, should reverse what the Supreme Court uh, of Colorado has done. 
Uh, what they say could happen is if Trump wins election, obviously, uh, that, the, uh, that the Congress, by a two-thirds vote, could essentially cure the problem and allow him to take office uh, if, this, uh, if this ruling uh, is, allowed to, is, is overturned. It's a very lengthy document that the uh, Trump team has submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court, 34 pages. I've gone through it myself. Evan, stay with us. And we're also joined by CNN's Caitlin Collins and legal analysts Norm Eisen and Jennifer Rogers. And Caitlin, you helped break this story for us here at CNN. Uh, walk us through what the Trump team's thinking is all about right now. Well, we knew they were going to appeal this decision. I mean, it was an explosive ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court saying that Trump was ineligible to be on the ballot. They've been working on this appeal for quite some time. They're coming right up until when they believed the deadline was, which is tomorrow, to actually file this. And, and, but the other part of this is that in the middle of writing this appeal, they were hit with the main ruling from the Secretary of State there, which was not from the Supreme Court there, like it was in Colorado, but instead from the Secretary of State. But they've been basically working on both of those issues, and they know that this is popping up everywhere. And to Evan's point, they're basically attacking every single front of this ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court, saying that January 6th was not an insurrection, that Trump didn't engage in it if it was, that Section 3 doesn't apply to him because the presidency is technically not an office uh, of the United States. So they're making some, some arguments here. The question, of course, is does the Supreme Court get involved? Because what this does is only put more pressure on them to do so. So there could be a, a blanket decision here. So there doesn't end up to where some states decide he can't be on the ballot and some states decide that he can, which I think everyone can agree would be chaos. Yeah, And Norm, uh, given the gravity of this uh, case right now, how likely is it that the Supreme Court will take this on? Uh, I think it's likely that one way or another, uh, the Supreme Court will move to resolve this. They may do it quickly. They may not do it quickly because by filing this uh, petition in the Supreme Court under the terms of the Colorado order, Wolf, Trump has stayed the Colorado proceedings. So at the moment, he remains on the ballot. The Supreme Court does have to speak to it. And this is one of those historic moments, really, in the uh, history of our country, where you have a very commonsensical reading uh, that the Colorado Supreme Court has adopted of the 14th Amendment, that Donald Trump uh, through his 187 minutes of inaction, the January 6th report, his tweet targeting Mike Pence in the midst of the violence, that he did participate in, in an insurrection. But then it meets the reality of how the Supreme Court reads that Constitution. This is going to be a tough uh, fight uh, for uh, the uh, petitioners to win, but nobody knows what the Supreme Court will do. We will find out at some point. Jennifer Rogers uh, is with us. The Supreme Court, as all of us know, is designed to settle these uh, constitutional questions that do come up. How do you think they would weigh this issue uh, if they do take up this case? Yeah, it's a great question, Wolf. I mean, this is the U.S. Constitution we're talking about. It is the U.S. Supreme Court that is the final word on what it means, and they've never spoken on this before. So, you know, it's anybody's guess what they do, except I think it's fair to say, or at least I think, that despite what looks like a very persuasive opinion from the Colorado Supreme Court and a lot of strong arguments saying that 
he should be disqualified from the ballot under the plain wording of the provision, I feel that the Supreme Court is going to find a way to say he stays on the ballot. It could be any of the reasons that Caitlin mentioned, the arguments that he makes, the legal ones, the factual ones, but I think that they are going to try to find a way to say that it doesn't apply to him. Uh, and I think that they'll try to do that with as close to a unanimous court as they can because the court is always, especially these days, concerned with its own re reputation and legitimacy. And, and just to be precise, Jennifer, uh, if the Supreme Court decides one way or another as far as the Colorado case is concerned, it will have an impact across the country, right, if other states are considering this? Right. I mean, I, I think that's what, what Caitlin was just talking about, the notion that different of these cases coming up to the court will find on different grounds that he needs to be disqualified or not disqualified. I think the court is going to try to speak on as many of these possibilities as they can so as to avoid this kind of patchwork approach. You know, Evan, in this uh, filing, Trump's lawyers said this, and let me read. I read to you what, what, the, what the, the, the argument is. The Colorado Supreme Court decision would unconstitutionally disenfranchise millions of voters in Colorado and likely be used as a template to disenfranchise tens of millions of voters nationwide. So how does this play into the, the whole battle that's going on right now over whether or not Trump should be allowed to be on these ballots in various states? Well, you know, look, Wolf, I mean, a, a lot of us when the, at the outset of this uh, didn't really give much chance for, for these things to go forward. I mean, look, I, I, there's been more than 60 lawsuits that Trump team points out uh, of this nature around the country. And most of these have like fallen away and have not gone as far as this. So th the fact that we're even here is kind of extraordinary. But one of the, one I find interesting in the argument that you just read, and that, that you just the part of the, the, the argument that you just read, is you know one of the things that the former president is accused of doing uh, back you know on January 6th and in the events around January 6th was to disenfranchise disenfranchise all of these voters, uh, millions of voters in various states because he didn't like the results in those states, and so now he's turning that very same argument around and saying that what you're trying to do is to disenfranchise uh, all, of these, all of these voters around the country. And it's a compelling argument because under our system, voters are the ones that are supposed to decide. And so the idea that you have a lot of these folks who are, were on the other side of the argument have now decided to, to try to bring these lawsuits to try to prevent him from being on the ballot is, is kind of a remarkable thing. Lots at stake right now. And I'm just, Caitlin, I understand you're getting some new information. Our colleague Kristen Holmes has confirmed that, that Trump is expected to attend the federal appeals court hearings next week, and that, that centers around his claim that he has presidential immunity when it comes to the federal election case here in Washington that Jack Smith is prosecuting. Basically, Trump has been arguing that he can't be prosecuted for something that happened while he was president. That is something that is being tested. He's personally going to be attending those hearings according to what we're hearing next week in person. You know, it's not the first time he's been in court. Obviously, he was in, in court in the civil case in New York a lot. I think it speaks to the fact that we are approaching the Iowa caucuses. And while we're going to be, Wolf, in the middle of these highly consequential dates of Iowa, New Hampshire, all of this, he is still going to court. He's got all of these court dates coming up. He is going to be in person at those hearings next week. It also speaks to what the Supreme Court could be dealing with, because they may not just be dealing with this Colorado issue should they choose to take it up. They also could be hearing uh, on his claims of presidential immunity. They've got a lot that they could be deciding that could in turn really affect and shape the 2024 election. But it also goes to his strategy, right? He, is, he tries to use these court appearances to try, to try to talk to the cameras and in that way essentially turn them into campaign appearances. Yeah. 
Yeah, good point. That's a very important point. We'll see what, how that, that unfolds. Guys, thank you very much. An important note, Caitlin, of course, will be back later tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, to anchor her show, The Source, 9 p.m. Eastern. Just ahead, we'll go live to the Middle East after deadly explosions in Iran near the tomb of a general killed in a U.S. airstrike. What we know and don't know about who was responsible. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tonight, Iran is threatening retaliation for what it's calling a terror attack. Two deadly explosions happening as Iranians were honoring a top general killed in a U.S. airstrike exactly four years ago. CNN's Nada Bashir has the latest. Scenes of chaos in the Iranian city of Kerman, an explosion sending crowds into disarray when a second blast rings out. Thousands had gathered to mark the anniversary of the death of military commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by a US airstrike in Baghdad four years ago. The twin blasts less than a mile from Soleimani's grave, killing more than 100 and injuring many more. Iranian officials say this was a terror attack. State media reporting that one of the explosions was caused by a bomb inside a suitcase in a car. Soleimani was Iran's revered top military general. This attack on his supporters, seen as a strike against the Iranian regime, which has many enemies both inside and outside the country. In Lebanon, the leader of Iran-backed Hezbollah commemorated Soleimani's death, but also used his speech on Wednesday to condemn Tuesday's killing of a top Hamas official on his own soil. Yesterday's crime was large and dangerous. This crime will not be left without a response and punishment. Between us and our enemies, there is time and the battlefield. The strike in southern Beirut targeted Salah al-Aruri and several others in what Hamas has described as a cowardly assassination. And while a U.S. official tells CNN that Israel was behind the strike, Israeli officials have so far been careful not to publicly take responsibility. Israel has not taken responsibility for this attack, but whoever did it, it must be clear that this was not an attack on the Lebanese state. It was not an attack even on Hezbollah. Hezbollah, perhaps not the target in Israel's eyes, but the Iran-backed group has long warned that any attack on Lebanese soil would trigger a response of equal severity on Israeli territory.
From the outset of the war between Israel and Hamas, fighting between Israel and Hezbollah has been largely contained to Lebanon's southern border region. But the brazen strike in Beirut, in the heart of Hezbollah territory, has raised fears among the United States and its allies that a full-scale war could break out between Israel and the Middle East's most powerful paramilitary force, or even more broadly, across the region. And more far, we are hearing those warnings from Hezbollah about the potential for this conflict to escalate more broadly. We have heard from the Lebanese foreign minister say that the Lebanese government does not want to see a war break out, that it is working to convince Hezbollah not to wage a war against Israel and that it wants to see peace on its southern border. The U.S. State Department, meanwhile, saying that it has no reason to be more concerned following Tuesday's strike of a broader escalation than it has been from the outset of the war, saying that in the U.S. perspective, it is not in the interest of Hezbollah nor in the interest of Israel to see a broader escalation in this conflict. Wolf? All right, Nada Bashir in Beirut for us. Nada, thank you very much. Uh, joining us now, the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. First, I want to discuss the explosions in Iran near Soleimani's grave. The U.S. does not believe Israel was involved. Based on what we know so far, and you're the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, who do you believe could have been behind this? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Wolf. And it's too early, I think, to speculate about who could have been behind it. And in fact, you know, who knows what we will ultimately learn. What I can tell you with some um, confidence is that um, this attack uh, does not have the hallmarks of a traditional Israeli, American, NATO operation. Uh, you know, what, would, what was really a terrorist attack, that is to say something that was designed to cause a lot of fear and kill a lot of civilians uh, without any obvious uh, military uh, benefit, uh, feels to me, and I do emphasize feels to me, but feels to me like more uh, the acts of one of the dozens of groups of people who uh, have a beef with the Iranian regime. When you're a brutal regime, as the Iranians are, you make a lot of enemies along the way, and this feels like one, you know, one of these groups as opposed to Israel or the U.S. or NATO taking an action. It feels to me like it's more something along those lines. Yeah, it feels like that to me, too. A U.S. official tells CNN Israel was behind the attack in Beirut, targeting a top Hamas commander. You heard Hezbollah's leader promise revenge. So what could that look like, Congressman? And is Israel risking a wider war right now by attacking and going after this Hamas leader in Lebanon's capital? Well, um, let's unpack that a little bit, a, a little bit, because I think a couple of things are true. Uh, number one, any senior member of Hamas who was involved in the planning of October 7th and the brutal murder of 1,200 Israelis uh, has a relatively short lifespan. Uh, we saw this, of course, with the way the Israelis dealt with the people who were involved with the, the terrorist attack on the Munich Olympic team back in the early 70s. The Israelis will not rest until the leaders of that brutal terrorist attack uh, are gone. And so I don't know whether this was an Israeli strike, but we do know what the future of an awful lot of these Hamas leaders uh, are. Number two, it is true that Hezbollah has stayed out of this fight. Uh, Hezbollah is sophisticated to understand the, enough to understand that attack on a Hamas leader is not the same as an attack on a Hezbollah leader. And while, I'm not, while I don't think it's in anybody's interest, including Hezbollah's uh, interest, to get involved in hostilities more uh, hotter, if you will, than what is already happening on the northern border of Israel, 
Um, there is one player, of course, who would like to see additional chaos, and that is the sponsor of Hezbollah, the sponsor of Hamas, and that's, of course, Iran. The U.S. is also, as you know, protecting ships in the Red Sea from Iran-backed Houthi attacks. What does the Biden administration need to do, Congressman, to prevent all these various flashpoints across the region right now from escalating into a much wider war? Well, I understand that the Biden administration has been very careful on this front and so far successful at not letting a, a, a what is a tragedy, but a tragedy that has been largely limited to Gaza and, uh, and, and Israel and the northern border with Israel to become a regional conflagration with lots of nation states involved. Um, what I would suggest, and, and the Biden administration isn't necessarily asking my opinion, but what I would suggest that the guiding principle here be, which is, is that nobody gets to escalate. And as a consequence, were I sitting in that Oval Office, I probably would have taken more aggressive action against the Houthis. Now, uh, the United States Navy, of course, sank three of their boats attacking uh, shipping, but I think we need to make it very clear that uh, uh, attacking freedom of navigation in the Red Sea um, is an escalation and it will not be tolerated. Uh, and, and, you know, if the Houthis want to find their ways to, we would obviously discourage this, but if they want to jump into direct uh, conflict with Israel, that will be their decision. But they do not get to implicate U.S. critical and global critical strategic interests. So again, my hope is that the Biden administration, perhaps by taking out launching sites, sends a very clear message um, that, that the world will not tolerate uh, an expansion of this war, especially one that, uh, that compromises freedom of navigation. And, and what is so worrisome is Iran has now deployed a destroyer to the Red Sea as well. Congressman Jim Himes, thanks as usual for joining us. Thank you, Wolf. And coming up, as Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis battle to be the primary challenger to Donald Trump, they're amping up their attacks on the front runner right now with the first votes only 12 days away. Tonight, Donald Trump's leading Republican rivals are actually stepping up their attacks on the front runner with the first in the nation Iowa caucuses now just 12 days away. Ron DeSantis is campaigning in Iowa while Nikki Haley is looking ahead to the primary a few days later in New Hampshire. CNN's Eva McKenna is covering Haley in the Granite State for us. Eva, what are Haley and the other candidates focusing on today? Wolf here in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley on stage as we speak. She's telling uh, voters here that she can win. Actually, so many people showed up to this event tonight. We heard uh, some folks being turned away, being told that they are at capacity. But she is telling folks disregard the polls that have Trump way out ahead that she is still very much competitive in this contest. Governor DeSantis giving a similar message to voters in Iowa, telling them that he doesn't think that Trump can win in a general election. Let's listen. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. You don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. I don't think Donald Trump ultimately can win an election. The whole election will end up being a referendum on his behavior, all this, all the, all the lawfare. 
And a strong day for the Haley campaign. They announced that they raised $24 million this quarter. That is up from $11 million last quarter. A real indication, Wolf, that some of the departures that we have seen from this contest, Senator Tim Scott, for instance, that some of his donors have moved over to Nikki Haley. Wolf. Important point indeed. Money talks, as they say. Eva McKen, thanks very, very much. Let's bring in our political commentators, Van Jones and Alice Stewart. Uh, Alice, uh, we're seeing DeSantis and Haley being a bit more critical of Trump out there on the campaign trail right now. The Iowa caucuses, as we noted, begin in some 12 days. Is this, though, too little, too late? Not necessarily, Wolf, because, look, the reality is this is a Republican primary. Donald Trump has a chokehold on the party. He is uh, by far... Um, leading the polls and has the support of many Republican voters. So it's a smart play for all of these candidates to keep their powder dry until we get closer to the caucus and, and the primaries, because we all know what has happened in the past, what has happened uh, to other candidates. If you get out there ahead of yourself and attack Donald Trump, it, it takes no time for him to knock you off of the track. So what they have done is uh, leveled their attacks in a more measured response in order to uh, prevent alienating his base. But now's the time, 12 days, put that powder back in the, in the cylinder and full speed ahead attacking Donald Trump. Uh, Van, what do you think? Well, I think that if uh, a pathway for uh, progress in the Republican Party was attacking Donald Trump, Chris Christie would be the number one person or number two. Uh, so I think that uh, this is, uh, at the end of the day, it's going to wind up being a battle for, for second place. Nikki Haley, unfortunately, really stepped on her momentum. I was hearing a lot of even Democrats impressed with her, excited about her. Um, I was getting you know, text messages from people who I would never thought would support any Republican and say, hey, if Nikki Haley gets it, I'm going with her over Biden. And then she kind of blew herself up on the slavery uh, gaffe uh, at the worst possible time. If she's able to figure out some way to put that behind her and get the momentum going, all the polls show she's got the best shot against Biden. Uh, she's got a better shot than DeSantis or, or Trump, uh, but the Republicans are going to have to get, get behind her uh, and give her that opportunity. Otherwise, it's going to be Trump versus Biden again. You know, Alice, uh, Chris Christie is facing calls from some Republicans to get, actually get out of the race to solidify the non-Trump vote. A new ad from Christie, uh, the Super PAC, a Christie Super PAC, seems to take that head on. Let's watch. I got into this race for president because everybody in my party who was offering themselves to be president of the United States were acting like it was going to fix itself. Don't mention his name. Don't criticize him. Don't do anything. I can't stand by and silently acquiesce to that. So is he uh, acting as a spoiler by staying in the race, uh, Alice? Look, I think it's hard to tell anyone to get out of the race because they put their life and livelihood on the line. But Chris Christie has done a tremendous job in really taking it to Donald Trump. But right now, Wolf, it's a numbers game. And until and unless the GOP uh, winnows the field and coalesces behind one person and makes this a head-to-head -head matchup against Donald Trump, then Donald Trump is just going to run the clock and win the nomination. So, look, I think it's important to let's get through Iowa and, and then... Uh, throw your support behind the person that is the most electable candidate against Donald Trump. And I think a lot of these candidates are going to have to make those decisions pretty soon. Van, let's talk about President Biden for a moment. Uh, as you probably know, he will travel to South Carolina next week, just ahead of the February 3rd primary there, which will serve potentially as a key test for the president with African-American voters. Support for Biden among black voters has softened from 2020, at least according to a lot of polls. Has he taken them for granted? 
Well, I think a lot of people feel that uh, the African-American community hasn't gotten as much uh, from the Biden administration as we had hoped for. Uh, we didn't get the voting rights we wanted. We didn't get the uh, police reform that we wanted. We didn't get further on criminal justice. And so there is that sense of a letdown. At the same time, uh, you know, Biden is not wrong when he says it's not about the almighty, it's about the alternative. Uh, you know, this, we do have a lot, I think, to be proud of as Democrats being able to pull out uh, from the COVID uh, catastrophe, being able to move forward. You've got an economy that really doesn't feel like the people, but by the numbers is on fire with the stock market um, up and uh, unemployment down. So I think he's got a case to make. He's got to make it. But I think he's going to a place that has a lot of warmth and love for him, South Carolina. Um, I think when you put him in front of, of a black church and remind people of the kind of, of heartbreak and pain that happens when white nationalism runs rampant in the country, I think people remember that Biden has been an ally for us on those fights. Van Jones and Alice Stewart, uh, thanks to both of you. Coming up, we're getting new details about that fiery and deadly airport collision in Japan. We'll be right back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We're learning new information tonight about the critical moments leading up to yesterday's fiery Tokyo Airport, Tokyo Airport collision. CNN's Brian Todd is joining us right now. Brian, update our viewers. Well, Wolf, some critical pieces of this jigsaw puzzle are trying to, are, are just now falling into place tonight. What we're learning tonight seems to point to a combination of factors, possible human error and possible equipment failure on the tarmac. As investigators sift through the charred wreckage, new information tonight on what may have caused this horrific, deadly accident when a Japan Airlines passenger plane collided on the runway at Haneda Airport with a Japanese Coast Guard plane. Publicly available records show that red warning lights embedded in the tarmac, lights designed to stop pilots from mistakenly taxiing onto active runways, were broken at Haneda Airport for seven days leading up to the accident and on the day of the accident. Five crew members aboard the Coast Guard plane were killed, one injured. Also tonight, another possible clue to the tragedy. Japanese officials have just released a transcript covering over four minutes of communications between air traffic control and the two planes involved. Just moments before the collision, the control tower says to the Coast Guard plane, referring to its tail number, quote, JA-722A, Tokyo Tower, good evening, number one, taxi to holding point C-5. CNN's analysis indicates that's likely a command to taxi to a point short of the runway, but not on the runway. But CNN analysts say the command is usually more specific, telling a taxiing plane to, quote, hold short of crossing another runway. If they were holding short of the runway, they should not have been on the runway or they should have not been landing there. According to the transcript, the Coast Guard plane seems to acknowledge the control tower's command. The Coast Guard crew responding, quote, taxi to holding point C5, JA-722A, number one. Thank you. We've also learned from Japan Airlines that the in-flight announcement system on the passenger plane malfunctioned during the evacuation. So the cabin crew used a megaphone and their own voices to direct people off the burning aircraft. Everyone on board, nearly 400 people, survived. A lot of us were skeptical on these big, wide-bodied aircraft. 
whether it really was practical to get some uh, a group a group that large out of an aircraft in that much time. Uh, and here we have a real life demonstration that it can be done. Japan Airlines passengers giving new accounts of their ordeal. I heard an explosion about 10 minutes after we all got off the plane. We would have been in trouble if we had left even a little late. Passengers themselves receiving praise from safety experts. Had the passengers, for instance, not followed instructions and tried to take overhead luggage with them or tried to, you know, pick up this stuff that they had left under their seats, people would have died. Now, so far, Japanese officials have said they have recovered the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder from the Coast Guard plane, but they have not yet recovered those devices from the Japan Airlines passenger plane. And Wolf, those devices are going to be very critical in this investigation. Yeah, we're going to be learning a lot more in the days to come. Right. I'm sure, Brian Todd, thank you very much. There's breaking news coming in right now. The U.S. Justice Department, listen to this, has just filed suit against the state of Texas over the state's controversial new immigration enforcement law. This as the House Speaker Mike Johnson visits the southern border. CNN's Ed Levandera has more. Migrants cross the Rio Grande into the United States as Speaker of the House Mike Johnson looks on during the Republicans' tour of the southern border. To highlight a crisis, he says the Biden administration is doing nothing to fix. Migrants have crossed into the United States by the thousands, more than 225,000 alone in December, the highest monthly surge recorded since the year 2000. America is at a breaking point with record levels of illegal immigration. And today, we got a firsthand look at the damage and the chaos the border catastrophe is causing in all of our communities. We have a broken immigration system that is the one single fact about which Everyone agrees. Droves of migrants have come through this crossing in Eagle Pass, Texas, despite the miles of razor wire, shipping containers, and other barriers built up along the border. A former Democratic state lawmaker in Eagle Pass, Texas, says Republicans' efforts to deter migration aren't working either. Anybody that's walked or ridden a train car 3,000 miles and been robbed, beaten, and raped to make it to that side right there do you think this is going to stop them? And the answer to that, as we already know, is uh, a big no. The White House is increasingly facing pressure from both Republicans and Democratic mayors and governors on the need for real solutions to the immigration crisis. And the Republican governor of Texas keeps ramping up the pressure as well, transporting tens of thousands of migrants unannounced to urban cities and blue states, straining their resources. Most migrants say they're just trying to escape the hardships they left behind. Like Kenny Contreras from Ecuador, who says his country is plagued by violence and extortion. And this migrant from Liberia, who says he spent $15,000 to reach the U.S. border. The U.S. has been my dream country since I was a young kid, you know. It's estimated that nearly 170 countries have people coming in and flowing across this border. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Senate leaders are working toward a possible deal to change current immigration law including the possibility of expedited removals of migrants who cross illegally and tightening rules on granting asylum. The House Speaker tells CNN's Jake Tapper the problem cannot be solved by allocating more money to the border. These are policy choices that got us in this situation, and what we're demanding is that the policies change. 
And Wolf, what many of these Republican lawmakers were also not open and willing to get into is the idea of immigration reform. And also we asked uh, several of them about uh, the Senate negotiations and the border security bill there. And many of them said uh, that they're really not interested in uh, kind of signing on to that bill at this point because they haven't seen it. And many of them are also saying that they're willing to shut down the government to get what they want here as far as border security is concerned. Ed Levendera, thank you very much for that report. Just ahead, we'll have more on the border crisis. I'll get reaction from the New York City Mayor, Eric Adams, who just imposed new restrictions on migrant buses coming to the city. All right, let's get back to the breaking news. The U.S. Justice Department is suing Texas over its strict new immigration law. Joining us now to discuss this and more, the New York City Mayor, Eric Adams. Mayor, thanks very much for joining us. I want to get your reaction to this new suit against Texas over its very controversial new immigration law. What's your reaction? Extremely pleased that the Washington, that D.C. has taken this action, the White House has taken this action. Uh, it's so important to send a very clear, loud message uh, to the governor of Texas, who is just really aggressively attempting to destabilize uh, cities. And I think this action is extremely appropriate. But it's also crucial, and I need to say this, uh, that w this is a national problem, and all of these cities need help from the national government, a decompression strategy, funding, uh, making sure we allow people to work and pursue the American dream. And so kudos to this important lawsuit that they uh, put in place, uh, but we still need the national government to solve this national problem. As you know, Mayor, Texas is now changing its strategy, dropping migrants off in New Jersey, not far from New York City, in order to evade new restrictions you imposed on busing coming into New York. Have you been outsmarted by the Texas governor, Greg Abbott? Uh, no, anyone who has a diabolical mind would do diabolical things to just treat people in an inhumane way. We handle over 164,000 migrants and asylum seekers, and we're doing it in a humane way. We're very clear that we're going to continue to adjust as the governor of Texas carry out these actions to make sure that we send a very clear, loud message. No bus company should be participating in this action, and we're going to communicate with our partners in this region and make sure that we tell them they should file the same level of executive order uh, to stop this from taking place. I know you've called the Texas Governor Greg Abbott a bully for his handling of these migrants who, who crossed the border from Mexico into Texas. A spokesperson for him, for the governor, accuses you of hypocrisy, saying you too have bused migrants north away from New York City. How do you respond? Well, it's totally inaccurate. Um, we have, uh, we're fixing the problem that he created. There are many people who came to New York City who wanted to go to other municipalities and they didn't have any other choice. Uh, Governor Abbott made it clear he was going to target cities like Chicago, Denver, New York, and just on uh, the inauguration day of the Philadelphia mayor, he sent a plane load there. So he's targeting cities. And that's a Big difference from asking people what are their destinations and reticketing them where they can go where they have families, friends, or other systems to support them. That is what we're doing, and we will continue to do so. What more do you need from the White House, Mayor? Uh, uh, how critical is it, for example, that the stalled bill in Congress right now that includes $14 billion for border security gets funded uh, because this is not cheap for New York City? 
No, it's not. And it's, it's not cheap for all the cities. And I want to be clear, as a mayor of one of the largest, the largest city in America, I'm not speaking only on behalf of my citizens here. I'm speaking on behalf of those uh, cities such as Brownsville, El Paso, uh, Chicago, uh, Boston. Uh, no mayor should have to deal with the crisis of this magnitude. Last week, uh, we had 3,000 uh, migrants and asylum seekers who arrived here. There's some weeks we get uh, anywhere from 3,900 to 4,000. Uh, just do the math. Handling uh, those level of migrants and asylum seekers is just not sustainable. And we know we need those dollars to come in. $5 billion budget deficit this fiscal year, $12 billion over three years. It's going to hurt low-income New Yorkers. And this is wrong for the, those New Yorkers as well as migrants and asylum seekers should not be placed in this condition. Before I let you go, Mayor, a, a very quick question on a very different subject. I want to ask you about this federal investigation, as you know, into your political campaign. The FBI seized your cell phones and iPad in November as part of a probe looking into illegal contributions to your campaign. Have you received a target letter from federal investigators? We made that clear before. No, we have not. Uh, listen, the, our federal agencies, our state agencies, our city agency, I'm a, foreign, I'm a former law enforcement officer. If inquiries are made, we must cooperate with those inquiries. And that's what I have done and stated I would do over and over again. I do not break, break laws. I did not spend 22 years enforcing the law to break a law. And whatever information and co co cooperation they need from me, I'm going to do that. And I'm, I'm fully transparent in making sure uh, we can get to the bottom of any accusation of, of that is made. The New York City Mayor Eric Adams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, there's breaking news. Dozens of documents from a lawsuit related to sex offender Jeffrey Epstein have just been released. Breaking news, the highly anticipated release of documents from a lawsuit connected to sex offender Jeffrey Epstein is now underway. CNN's Kara Scannell is covering this for us. Kara, why are these names coming out now and what are the implications? Well, Wolf, this is part of a long-running lawsuit brought by an Epstein accuser named Virginia Roberts Jufre. And it was this lawsuit has been settled, but numerous news organizations had asked for these documents to be unsealed. The judge has ordered the unsealing, and we're starting to see them to hit the docket. Right now, there's about 40 um, documents that are on the docket, totaling more than 900 pages. So our team is calling through them now. But this is all you know, part of this lawsuit. And part of the reason why the judge said that she would unseal the, the names in these documents is because a lot of these names have already become public, either through the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's former or longtime girlfriend who was convicted of helping him uh, sex traffic minors, as well as through interviews that a number of accusers have given to news organizations and, um, you know, just other information that has come out over the 20 years that Epstein has been alleged to have been involved in this sex uh, trafficking operation. So we're starting to see some of these names come out. And Virginia Dufre has been very public about her allegations accusing prominent politicians of, being, of having been forced to have sex with them, as well as her allegations against Prince Andrew. She had reached a settlement with the prince where he's agreed to make a sizable donation. So we're going to go through these documents to see if we're learning any new names or new allegations. Uh, but, you know, a lot of this information has already been public, and that is why the judge has agreed to unseal it. Well, we'll see what happens. Kara Scannell, thank you very much. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Aaron Burnett out front starts right now.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.